Because surely when Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me, therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary, that's certainly a reference to the sin of Adam and its consequences. And when Abraham and Job and two psalmists and Solomon and Ecclesiastes talk about humankind being made of dust and returning to dust, that understanding is deeply rooted in Adam. And they're talking about the consequences of his sin. So here, for example, is Ecclesiastes 3 verse 20. It says, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. And finally, Anderson seems to miss or ignore that among the few times Adam is mentioned by name in the Bible, it's in the books of the Bible that are most concerned with historical accuracy. Let me explain that. In my preaching cohort, when we divide up the genres of the Bible, we make a distinction between narrative and history. And that's not to say that the Bible's narratives aren't historically accurate, we believe they are, but the account of David and Goliath, for example, is written in the genre of narrative. It has dialogue and characters and emotional depth. It's doing so much more than merely recounting the historical facts. And most of the accounts in the Bible go into the drawer labelled narrative. The drawer labelled history is reserved for the few places where details are given purely for historical interest. These are usually the driest parts of the Bible. So it's like the genealogies in Genesis or the census records in Numbers. And who was the governor of which territory in the Gospel of Luke? It's really important, but the only people who get excited about that stuff are historians. Now, if we ask which books of the Bible are most concerned with that kind of historical record-keeping, there are two candidates that quickly bubble to the top. In the Old Testament, it has to be the books of Chronicles, and in the New Testament, it's the books that Luke wrote, Luke and Acts. And if we look at those two sets of books, then strikingly, both of them include a genealogy that goes all the way back to the beginning and back to Adam and names Adam at the beginning of the story. So I would argue that when the Bible wants to recount pure history, it makes sure to start with Adam. And finally, I want to briefly give you five theological reasons why a historical Adam and Eve are essential to the whole Christian gospel. First, only Adam and Eve account for universal sin. So the Bible teaches in many places that the core of our problem is sin. We rebel against God, we break his laws, and we fail to live up to his standards. And that problem is universal, so no one is immune. All the evidence we see in the world today agrees with this diagnosis. But the Bible also says that God created everything good as indeed we would expect from an all-loving and all-powerful being. And this gives rise to Christianity's most difficult problem. How then do we account for this universal reality of sin among all people if God made us good? And there is no satisfactory answer to this question in any other religion or philosophy on earth. The only satisfactory answer is the Bible's answer of Adam and Eve, but they have to be historical for it to work. Our real historical first parents chose to break faith with God and corrupted all of their lineage as a result. So Adam named his wife Eve, it says, because she would be the mother of all the living. 
And in the New Testament, we hear that the reason Jesus came was to die for sin, to solve this problem. But with no Adam and Eve, there's no real sin problem for Jesus to solve. Second, only Adam and Eve account for universal death. Death was the spoken consequence of their disobedience. If death is an unwelcome intruder into God's good world, as the Bible says it is, and as our own hearts agree, where did death come from? Unless it is the just consequence of a real historical event. We believe that Jesus embraced death on the cross in order to conquer death. But if death were not a real enemy introduced by a real Adam and Eve, then what did Jesus' death actually conquer? Third, Adam and Eve lay the foundation of representative headship. This is Paul's great discovery in Romans chapter 5. He says, as in Adam all died, so in Christ will all be made alive. So we believe that we can be saved by a champion fighting for us on our behalf. The idea is that Jesus dies so that we don't have to. But for that to work, we rely on the principle of representative headship. And Paul says that we can only do that because our problem of sin also came into the world in the same way. So one man kills us all, another man saves us all, and those two ideas go together inseparably. But of course, if Adam wasn't real and the fall never happened, then Paul's argument in Romans 5 utterly falls apart. Fourth, Adam and Eve link death with disobedience and life with obedience. God clearly spoke and laid out consequences explicitly, and the first couple disobeyed. And death was the result of disobedience, so that God's judgment was just. When it comes to our salvation, the power of Jesus' death came both from his identity as the Son of God, and also from the obedience of his sinless life. And his obedience solves the real problem, only because the real problem was originally disobedience as a historical event. And fifth and finally, only Adam and Eve account for our estrangement from God. And this follows from the fourth point. Jesus also came in order to reconcile us to God. In other words, to repair our broken relationship with the Father. But that gives rise to the question, how did that relationship get broken in the first place? And the only satisfying answer is that there was a deliberate breach of an explicit command from God, which people broke because of a false belief about God's own character. In other words, the account of Adam and Eve explains how our relationship with God got broken in a way that nothing else can. So, without this interaction with the serpent in the garden as a real part of our common history, we lose the Bible's best explanation for the introduction of sin and death into God's good world, and how our relationship with God got broken. And we also lose the Bible's best examples of representative headship and of the consequences of disobedience. So really, without Adam and Eve, the gospel of Jesus doesn't really make any sense at all. And I conclude that viewing Genesis 3 as historical is essential to Christian faith. It's actually as important as believing in a historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Believing that... It's a true historical event, makes every tiny detail in Genesis 3 important. And that leaves us with some really, really big questions, not least of which is, what are we going to do with the talking snake? So let's get into the text now and think about that one. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
So Genesis 3 verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And that note of foreboding sets the scene for this whole story. In verse 2, the serpent speaks to the woman. And this is the dimension of the whole story that makes it sound most mythological. What are we going to make of the talking snake? And that opens up all kinds of other questions like, did all animals talk in the beginning? And will they talk again in the new earth? As C.S. Lewis seems to imagine they would in the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, first, let's agree that the central identity of the serpent in Genesis 3 is Satan, the enemy of God. Because Revelation chapter 12 makes that connection clear in verse 9. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So that verse is a bit like a Rosetta Stone for understanding Satan. It reveals that all of those titles, devil, deceiver, serpent, dragon, all refer to the same person. And we understand from the little that scripture says about him that Satan is an angel. So that means a creature of God, but not a physical creature like we are, a spiritual creature. No body. Like the other angels, Satan has no permanent substance, no permanent body. Like the other angels, Satan was created as a good and glorious servant of God. But unlike most of the other angels, Satan rebelled against God at some time before the creation of the material world and he turned to evil. And Satan now works against God, undermines all God's plans whenever he can and seeks to hurt and destroy the children of God. Satan is not God's equal. He is not equal in eternity or power with God, um, but he is his enemy. So we learn that this character that Adam and Eve met in the garden in Genesis 3 is the same Satan who later tormented Job in Job chapters 1 and 2, and then who much later tempted Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. So he seems to be essentially immortal. He was alive at the creation of the world and still alive today. But identifying the serpent with Satan doesn't really solve the talking snake problem because Satan, as we meet him in the rest of the Bible, isn't a snake. He's a spirit. He never appears as a snake again. So then what did Eve see in the garden? And I think there are only really four options. First, that Satan appeared to her in the form of a snake, uh, some kind of manifestation. Second, that he spoke to her through the mouth of an actual snake. Uh, he possessed it as some kind of puppet. Third, that he spoke directly into Eve's mind or heart as she was looking at a snake. So it's some kind of dream or vision that was loosely connected with seeing a snake. And then the final option is that the speech that the snake gave was some kind of deliberate collusion between Satan and a talking snake. So they were working together. And I think those are the only possible options from the text. And the text of Genesis 3 actually rules out the first three of them. The physical snake itself 
is implicated in the temptation. Because verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So that makes it clear by comparison that we're talking about an ordinary snake, just one of the beasts of the field. And that the snake's own craftiness played a part in all that follows. Then in verse 14, God curses the snake for his role in the fall. God says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And again, God is using comparative language. And it's really hardly fair for God to blame the snake if Satan only appeared in the form of a snake, or if he used the snake as a kind of puppet, or if he spoke directly into Eve's mind while she was looking at a snake. God is just, and he wouldn't punish a helpless animal for no reason. So that only leaves us with the the fourth and final option, that the serpent in his own craftiness knowingly colluded with Satan to deliver his message of lies. So then, does that mean that all serpents could talk at the time, or even that all animals could talk? And I think that's possible, but I really kind of doubt it. Uh, I love the Chronicles of Narnia as much as anyone, and I actually really like the idea of talking animals. Uh, but surely the Bible would have made much more of a big deal about that if that were the case. There's no mention of talking animals in any of the New Earth prophecies in either of the Old or the New Testaments. And they do say plenty of other things about animals. The only other talking animal in the Bible is Balaam's donkey in Numbers 22. And in that chapter, it's a judgment on men. And it clearly says that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. So if God can do that to an animal, then it follows that maybe Satan can too. So I suspect that the snake couldn't talk without Satan's help. But the serpent did have enough of his own intelligence and craftiness to be held responsible for his part in the deception. So then what about Eve's lack of surprise at hearing a serpent speak? Some people have drawn attention to this and noted that you would expect Eve's first words to be, Ah, a talking snake! Uh, which is not what they are. Um, I don't find that line of reasoning very persuasive. In these early days of the world, everything would have been marvellous and unexpected. There would have been a thousand new discoveries every day. So you'd expect Adam and Eve to walk around like young children who are surprised by hardly anything because they live in a constant state of wonder. So that to me is the best sense we can make out of the talking snake. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it's the best of all the alternatives. One more thing we can think about is why did Satan use the snake at all? Why did he need a snake? And I think the reason for that is to increase the sin. Because think about this. If Satan had appeared to them as a glorious angel, Adam and Eve could have been forgiven for being overwhelmed by the glory, or terrified, or bullied into submission, or confused as to who was their true authority. But all of those excuses are stripped away by the humble snake, leaving the sin in their own hearts laid bare. The snake made a good partner for Satan because of his natural craftiness. And there's a kind of pun in the Hebrew, because when the last verse of chapter 2 says the man and his wife were both naked, it's the Hebrew word arum. 
And when the first verse of chapter 3 says the serpent was crafty, that's a very similar Hebrew word, arumim. And those words aren't actually related at all. They're not opposites, but they're obviously chosen deliberately as a kind of pun. So it's innocence and simplicity versus slyness and sophistication. And that's part of the reason that it didn't go so well for the humans. So now let's examine the actual conversation more carefully and see where Eve went wrong. So we're looking at how the conversation between the woman and the serpent went so wrong for Eve. When the serpent spoke to the woman, he obviously misquoted God because he said to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Clearly wrong. But when the woman tried to correct him, she also got it wrong. She also misquoted God in some very significant ways that we're going to look at now. So the, the woman says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 and listen again to what God actually said. Here's what his command was to Adam. God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Eve gets pretty close as she repeats this command, but she makes at least three mistakes when she tries to repeat what God said, and they turn out to be very significant mistakes. So first, she talks about the tree in the midst of the garden, and when God said it, he named it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because there were two trees in the midst of the garden, and the other one, the tree of life, was fair game for them to eat from. Indeed, God encouraged them to eat from that tree, but Eve seems to have forgotten that when she replies to the snake. Second, she adds a detail that God never said, that they weren't allowed to touch the fruit. So in effect, Eve put a fence around the law, and that might seem harmless enough. But Jewish scholar Robert Alter points out that this is actually very dangerous. Because what it means is that when Eve reaches out and touches the fruit, and breaks what she perceives to be a command of God, and she finds that nothing happens... It's going to give her a false sense of confidence that nothing's going to happen when she eats it either. Do you see how that works? The danger of that attends every fence that we make around God's law. So if we're going to build those fences, which is sometimes a wise thing for us to do, we must never, never allow ourselves to forget the difference between the law itself and the fence that we have made. Because that's going to get us into enormous trouble as it did for Eve. And then she made a third mistake, which is probably her biggest, which is, in repeating God's command, she left out all of the emphasis that God had made. So, God said that all of the other fruits you may surely eat, emphatic. And that sounds generous, coming from a lavish God, a good father. But Eve repeated it as, you may eat which changes the whole sense to sound grudging. God also said that on the day that you eat the forbidden fruit, you will surely die, similarly emphatic. 
And that sounds very serious, but Eve repeats it as, lest you die, which sounds very vague. So, Eve downplays God's generosity and she downplays the consequences of disobeying him, which leads her vulnerable and wide open to attack. And the serpent is all too ready to pounce on that weakness. Satan remembers God's emphasis when he contradicts him by saying, you will not surely die. And actually, it initially seems that Satan was right about that. So the next thing we need to talk about is death. What do we do with the problem of death? So God warned Adam in Genesis 2 that on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But then in chapter 3, Adam eats the forbidden fruit and he doesn't die. At least not immediately. According to chapter 5, Adam lives for another 930 years. So we must ask, was God telling Adam the truth? And this gives us an opportunity to probe the question, what is death really? And the Bible's answer in simple terms is that death is separation. So God puts things together and they live, but when those things get separated, that's death. So a human life is a union of body and spirit. You are a union of body and spirit. Your definition as a human is not a body that holds a spirit, like a kind of container. And your definition as a human is, you're not a spirit that wears a body, like a kind of clothing. No, to be a human, you're a fusion of the two together, a union of body and spirit. So then what we mean by physical death is that the moment the body and the spirit are separated is the moment you die. And the Bible is clear about that. So Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7 says that in death, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. The two are separated only temporarily because in resurrection they are reunited. But if life is connection and death is separation, then there's also another kind of connection that we need in order to live. Our spirits need to be connected to God. Now, our sin causes us to become separated from God, which we can talk about as spiritual death. And that's not that we cease to have a spirit, but rather that we carry around a dead spirit a spirit that has become disconnected from God. So Paul explains this in Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So Paul's obviously not talking about physical death here, since he must have been breathing to write the letter at all. But he talks about his death in the past tense, I died, because he means his own spiritual death. 
And Paul describes how the process worked out for him in exactly the same way it worked out for Adam. Through the good commandment of God that was given for life, being twisted by sin to instead produce death. So we realise and we recognise that Adam did die on the very day he ate of the fruit. He died spiritually on that day and the word of God proved true. And we can see that because of the immediately, immediate effects of uh, the spiritual death on Adam's behaviour in the verses that follow. So first, Adam hides from God and then he blames Eve in order to defend himself. He's happy to throw his own wife under the bus. And Adam's spiritual death also set in motion the process of his physical death. Adam began to die physically on the day that he disobeyed God. And we see from this that both life and death are processes as well as states. Neither of them is static. If we live, then we are always growing into greater and greater maturity and intimacy with God, more and more connection. If we die, then we are always disintegrating further and further and drifting farther and farther away from God, more and more separation. So if you've read it, think of C.S. Lewis's description of hell in The Great Divorce. It's like a universe of people constantly expanding, separating forever and ever and ever, always getting further and further apart. So, as we think about death in this passage, we must ourselves learn to take God's warning in Genesis 2 to heart. God said, you will surely die. It was a solemn warning, very emphatic. And is any word God has spoken more ignored in our day than this one? We ourselves ignore this warning most of the time. You will surely die die. And how much more do the non-churchgoers ignore it? So we wake up each day and make our plans as if we were going to live forever. And when death draws near to us, as it has for many of us in these past few weeks, we respond with surprise and with alarm as if we never thought that was going to happen. We never imagined such a thing. Because we have swallowed the devil's lie, you will not surely die. That sounds sweet to us and reasonable. And I think it's far more deeply embedded in all of our hearts than we care to admit, even now. Because would we and our neighbours trifle with sin as we do if we really believed God's warning that you will surely die? Would we lie to our spouses if we believed you will surely die? Would we mentally and physically abuse our children if we believed you will surely die? Would we casually use other people for our own sexual pleasure, delighting in them with no marriage commitment, if we believed you will surely die? And would we casually steal Amazon packages from each other's porches, if we believed you will surely die? We have forcefully and deliberately cast death out of our minds, and with it we have cast out our fear of displeasing God. And if this COVID pandemic does any good in our hearts, then let it remind us of a healthy and realistic fear of death. So I've been reading Tim Keller's very small book, 
called On Death over the past couple of weeks, and I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful little book, and it was published just this year, just in time for us all to need it. And Keller says in that book, modern people are more unrealistic and more unprepared for death than any people in history. So let's allow this season to make us a little more realistic about death. But now I want to come back to this idea that both life and death are processes because it helps us out with the next difficult question, and which is this. If the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was so dangerous, then why on earth did God put it in the garden? So, the tree seems like a bit of a setup, doesn't it? Here are these two innocent and fairly simple minded humans in a beautiful garden paradise, but God plants in the middle of the garden a poison tree. A tree whose fruit will bring instant death along with the destruction of everything else God made. So God makes a world and then he puts a bomb right in the middle of it, which is just waiting to go off. And it seems inevitable that it's going to explode sooner or later and destroy everything. So why would God do that? What was he thinking? God calls this poison tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And even Satan agrees with that name because he says to Adam and Eve in verse 4 of Genesis 3, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And indeed, part of what Satan promises does come true. Because in verse 7, after they've eaten the fruit, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened... And they did indeed get a much better understanding of good and evil. But the middle part went terribly wrong because instead of being like God, they became much less like him. So why did God allow this to happen? It was such a disaster and it's taken such an immeasurable amount of pain and suffering to put it right. Well, I was troubled by this question for a long time until John Calvin answered it for me in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, because Calvin realised that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was actually God's greatest gift to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created perfect in the sense of being sinless, but they weren't finished. They weren't yet everything they could be. Just like the earth itself was perfect, but it wasn't complete. There was there was work left for Adam and Eve to do in planting it and stewarding it and developing it. And they themselves were not quite finished. They were like children and they had a long way to grow up into maturity. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the greatest gift that God gave to them because it was their pathway to glory. Because without that tree, what opportunity did they have to obey God, to treat God as God and put themselves in right relation to him. None, really. Everything in the garden was perfect. The commands to eat and work and have sex were all delightful. And there's no real obedience if the thing you're being asked to do is the thing you want to do anyway. 
So how would Adam and Eve grow? How would they mature? How would they learn to know God properly? How would they turn from innocent, naive, childlike people into mighty, glorious image bearers of the Father? They needed a command from God that was hard to obey. They needed a word from God that had to be guarded and treasured for God's own sake so that they could start to learn worship, the greatest lesson of all. So Calvin realised that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have done its job infallibly whatever an Adam and Eve decided to do with it. It taught them the knowledge of good and evil either way. They could either obey God's command and so learn the difference between good and evil from the perspective of good, or they could disobey the command and learn the same lesson from the perspective of evil. And clearly one of those options was significantly better than the other. There is still a path to glory left open to us now. It goes through the cross of Jesus. And suffering now does a similar job in maturing us that obedience in the beginning might have done. But now we'll never know how short and how simple was the process of reaching glory through obedience because that is the road not taken. So I just have one final note from Genesis 3 for you. And it's a lesson about shortcuts. So we're going to think finally about shortcuts. We are always falling into the traps laid by our enemy, the devil, aren't we? And we fall into them because they seem so appealing. They look like such a good idea at the time. And one of the main ways they appeal to us is that they look like shortcuts. But the reality is that they extend the journey considerably. They take us very much the long way around. So Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden is often compared with Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism. And that comparison is appropriate because Jesus faced the same test that Adam faced, in fact a much worse one, and Jesus passed where Adam had failed. And when we look at the way that Satan tempted Jesus, we see that Satan promised to give Jesus three very great things at a bargain price. So first it was feed your hunger simply by speaking bread into existence. Second, uh, he, he was promised recognition from the Jewish leaders as their Messiah simply by performing a stunt and jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. And then third, he was promised rulership over all the kingdoms of the earth simply by bowing down to worship Satan. So it was three great offers at a bargain price. But when we think about those things, we also see that God the Father had already promised all three of those things to his beloved son in his word. So he promised that the son would feast on far more than bread at a heavenly banquet in the end. He pro the father promised that the son would be acknowledged as Messiah throughout the whole world, as we're seeing happening today. And the father promised that he would rule as king of kings and lord of lords. So Satan wasn't promising Jesus anything that he wasn't already going to have in the fullness of time. But Satan was promising him those things at a bargain price. Uh, his way seemed like a shortcut. You can get all those good things now without the cross because the path that God laid out for Jesus was going to take him 
through the cross. And Satan said, I'll give it to you without the hard work and without the suffering. Now we can recognise, when we recognise that pattern with Jesus, we can also recognise the same thing going on with Adam and Eve in the garden. Because Satan promised them that by eating the fruit, they would have their eyes opened, they would be like God, and they would know good and evil. But of course that was always God's full intention for them anyway, and so much more. God wanted them to grow to know good and evil, and he wanted their eyes to be open, and he wanted them to be like him. He made them in his image. He wanted them to be more intimate with him and more like him than any other creature that he's ever made. So all that Satan was offering them was a get-rich-quick scheme. It was a shortcut way to get the things now that God wanted for them later. But the shortcut turned out to be such a very long way around. And that's a lesson that we all need to take deep into our hearts. That Satan's shortcuts are much, much longer and more painstaking than God's ways. God actually leads us by the easiest and most direct way. It might not seem so at the time, but he's sparing us all the trouble he can. So God led his people straight from Egypt to Canaan in three weeks, and they got to the boundary of the promised land. And it was only through mistrusting God and giving in to fear and temptation and Satan that led to 40 years wandering in the desert until all of that generation died out, except for two men. And they did get there in the end, but only after great hardship. And we too will get there in the end. But we have a choice to make between whether we're going to take the hard way or the easy way. Satan's temptations to us today are still shortcuts. Parent shortcuts. They're temptations to snatch good things that God actually wants us to have, to snatch them early and thereby rob ourselves of really having and enjoying them until long after God would have gladly given them to us. So we find that if we snatch wealth through greed and selfishness, then it comes packaged with anxiety and violence. And if we snatch sex without the covenant, then it comes with strife and with loneliness. And if we snatch ecstasy through chemical substances, then it comes with addiction and slavery. And if we snatch power through violence, then it comes with fear. And so on and so on. The shortcut is never quicker or better or happier than God's way. And it's always immeasurably worse. Satan has never wanted anything good for us, only our death. So let's resolve now to reject all of his worthless shortcuts. Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. May each of us continue to resist him, standing firm in our faith. So that's all I have for you now. May God bless you as you continue to treasure his word. Thank you.